morning, Salt City Church. My name is Drake, and I'm going to need that sheet of paper. Uh, I'm one of the college pastors here, and it is a joy to be with you all this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open that up to Ephesians 6. We've got a couple weeks left in our We Are the Church series here at Salt City, uh, and so we're beginning in the chapter of 6 this morning. But as we are continuing through the book of Ephesians, we are going to be looking again at what has come to be known as Paul's household codes. And so these household codes are contained at the end of chapter 5 when it talks to wives and husbands, and it's going to continue on through chapter 6. And so Paul is wanting to give everyone very practical advice for what it looks like to follow Christ in whatever context you are currently living in, in whatever context the people in Ephesus are currently living in. And so the use of these household codes that Paul is speaking to isn't actually unique to Paul. Like the, there would have been household codes that everyone in that society would have known that would have been the norms of that society. And as Jordan mentioned last week, the household codes that were kind of held as the prominent understanding of this time were written by Aristotle. So Aristotle had this belief that the breakdown of the household was the father, then the wife, then the children, and then the bond servants in that order. And so here's actually a quote that he would say from his book on politics. He says, of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of a master over slaves, another of a father, and the third of a husband. A husband and father rules over wife and children, both free, but the rule differs. The rule of his children being a royal over his wife, a constitutional rule. Okay, so I'm not going to break down every line from that, but the prominent thing I want you to see from that quote is the word rule. The father was seen as having this authoritarian type of leadership where there's really not much expected of him and demanded of him when it came to caring and nurturing his family but actually to just establish his power and authority. And so if we look at the household codes that Aristotle had, it would have been summarized as this. The father rules over all, which leads to hierarchy. And so Paul is speaking into this culture with a set of household codes of his own. And what he's doing in this chapter is something similar to that Jesus did on the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus said, you have heard it said this, but I say. And so Paul is taking the household codes that people operated out of and is actually flipping them on their head. And that's because it's all under the umbrella of what we saw in Ephesians 5.18 where it says that now, as children of God, you are to live as being filled with the Spirit. Like that is the new constant of our reality and the rest of Ephesians is going to be an extremely practical look of what does it look like for you to live as a spirit-filled believer? What does it look like for you to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? That is kind of the transitional verse of the household codes. And so if Aristotle's view was the father rules over all, which leads to hierarchy, Paul's view was Christ rules over all, which leads to humility. What would it look like if Christ-like humility began to seep into every area of your life? So let's continue in chapter 6, verse 1, as we look at the rest of these household codes. It says, Children, 
Obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Whether he is a bondservant or is free, masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So Paul, again, is walking through each kind of role within these household codes, and he's trying to give them very practical advice of what does it look like to follow Jesus. So if you're a practical person, this section of Ephesians is for you, all right? And the way that we lay this out will be for you this morning. But as we walk through this, I think it's important for us to dig into the background of what he means by masters and bondservants in this text. Because the use of the word servant, or in some versions of the Bible, slaves, can actually stir up in us thoughts that would not apply to the context that Paul is writing to. Because when we hear these words, what comes to mind is a race-based form of slavery that is a tragic and evil part of this country's history, a, a time where this verse was actually gravely misused and abused in order to bring about the oppression and devaluing of people made in the image of God, a division that still causes hurt to this day. And so for us to understand what Paul is speaking to the church at Ephesus, we need a right understanding of what bondservant meant in that day and not apply what comes to our mind to this text. And so in Roman society, about one in every two people were bondservants. For a lot of people, this was just their way of living. This was not a system that was based on race, and actually, a lot of the time, it was a temporary form of service that they were playing out. And for a lot of these bondservants, actually, it was a better form of life than what they might have been able to attain on their own. They were having dignified roles such as tutors and bookkeepers and doctors. They were able to own their own property. They were even able to own their own bondservants. And so where th there may have been harsher experiences of this, for a lot of them, this was just their way of living. In that society, it was seen as frowned upon to be an elite and to do any physical labor, so they would hire all that out, leading to a majority of the population carrying this role. So I say all of that just to communicate that the, the bondservant idea that was present in that society was incredibly different from what we look back on our history in this country. Still, not okay. Still not a good structure that was in that society, but a very different one that we, than we might have in mind. And we need to understand the rightful context because we have to understand that what Paul is, we need to dig into what Paul is saying to them in order for us to see what he is speaking to us this morning. And so Paul, by no means, is endorsing slavery of any kind as he talks to this. 
Like actually elsewhere in the Bible, in 1 Timothy 1.10, Paul lists out a group of sinners and evildoers. And in that list, he includes slave owners or anyone that sells someone into slavery. It is clear from other writings in the New and the Old Testament that God's word does not condone slavery. Earlier in this letter, Paul is writing, he speaks about how the dividing wall of hostility between races has actually been torn down by the death of Christ, and that is the new reality. So what is Paul doing as he writes to bondservants in this moment? Paul is seeking to be a pastor and to care for real people in the church. Because whether we know this or not, as he writes this letter, this would be a letter that would be read aloud publicly to the whole church. And he does something that would have been completely unexpected to anyone in that church context. That would have been completely unexpected to every single bondservant in that church. He speaks to them. Imagine for a second that they are all sitting in a room like this, and the last thing that comes to their mind is that the person reading off this letter would directly speak to them. Like, if I were to call you out on this Sunday morning by name, okay, that would catch you off guard, but that would be just because it was incredibly random. This would have been the last thing. It wouldn't even cross their mind because of who they were within the household. Anytime they would have been spoken to, it would have been speaking to the master on their behalf. And so you imagine a level of heart sinking in their chest when they are spoken to directly that Paul gives them the dignity that they deserve by addressing them. And as you look at this passage, you'll see that he actually talks to them far more than he talks to the masters of the house. He wants to care for them. He wants to speak to them. And so in Paul doing this, he isn't seeking about some sort of political power being changed, something that Christians had zero say in that day to do. He wasn't seeking for a political entity to change, but he was seeking to bring about a new people by the blood of Jesus. He wants a renewed people to operate out of the Spirit of God that dwells within them, one that every single person involved in this household would operate out of. Calling every single person in that household to not operate out of the the household codes of this world that led to hierarchy, but actually to operate out of one that led to humility and love and a mutual submission to Christ. So how would it be, how the world be different if this heart of Christ was lived out in each and every one of us? So the goal of Paul's words is to lovingly pastor people in the church to answer this question. How do I walk as a follower of Christ in the world that I am in tomorrow? He will walk through the the different roles of the household, and so we're going to do that exact same thing. And again, what was going on in Paul's mind is how do you practically live as a follower of Jesus where you are currently at? And so first, the first of the four that we're going to go over today is speaking to children. So let's look back at the text in verse 1 through 3. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Okay, I had, I had some pushback to this growing up. I see a new appreciation in this text now. Uh, but what it's saying is, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. He's saying this is the good and the right 
structure that God has put in place, the, the naturally given authority that God has put in place. And while you are living this out of obeying your parents, what you're doing is that you're ultimately submitting to the Lord with your life. And that this is a good and right design for you. The text says that this is the first of the Ten Commandments with a promise that it may go well with you. That this is actually for your flourishing as an individual that their life experience, whether from good or poor choices, uh, that their long-term processing, that their time over the years in God's Word would actually be a benefit to you for you to make wise choices as well. The call is to lean in with a posture of respect and thankfulness, not one of annoyance. And so he calls the, the children to actually see that you walk in obedience to your parents as long as it, it is obedience to the Lord and honoring him as well, that this is actually for your flourishing. And so the next one that he speaks to is to the fathers. And I want to spend a little bit more time in here because uh, as you've seen, there has been a growing number of parents within this church, all right? And so I want to focus in on what it looks like to be a parent walking out of a spirit-filled humility. Uh, but first, I, I want to focus in a little bit more on what fathers were like in this society. So fathers were seen as having absolute authority over their kids. They could choose whether they still wanted them. They could choose whether they were selling them. They could choose whether they would die off. Any, anything was on the table for the father to choose. And literally, when the child was born, there was a practice in this society that the infant would be set before the father's feet on the ground, and the father would either pick this child up to show that I'm embracing this child and I will raise this child, or the father would just turn and walk away. And the child would be left there for someone to come maybe pick it up and maybe sell this child off or just left there helpless. And so Paul's words to fathers when this is the backdrop of society is utterly shocking. He says, these are the words that he says to them, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So this is the first time that maybe these people are, the, the fathers are feeling that there's something demanded of them to care for, to nurture their family in that context. He's saying, don't lead with a heavy hand. Don't show favoritism. Don't see your kids as an obstacle to your day, to your career path, to your hobbies. You are to lean in and to love and to cherish and to raise them up. And so he's saying, don't lead out of this impulse, out of your own selfish desire, but actually lead out of a humble intentionality. The humility being infused into the life of parenting looks like a switch from seeing kids as an obstacle to your desires and as image bearers to be formed and discipled. And as I sat with this text, this was incredibly convicting to me. Because parenting, in the very fast year that it has been so far, has revealed depths of selfishness in my heart that I didn't even know existed. And maybe some of you new parents feel that as well. Impatience because of a lack of convenience to me, frustration because that short nap went into my free time, pressure on how they act and perform and what that says about me as a parent, or moments where I feel like I'm going a little bit crazy, and I'm really glad people don't have a window into that moment, right? 
Like, I've seen that come out, and it feels like such a hard fight to push back against my selfish impulses as a parent. And this text reminded me, and this kind of walkthrough of Ephesians reminded me that I constantly need to be reminded that I cannot do this on my own. That parenting in the short time that it's been so far has revealed a greater need to rely on the Spirit than I was ever aware of before. Like maybe on a good day, I can be really patient with some slow traffic, but a kid losing his or his or her mind is dramatically different. And so in that moment, I realized, man, I need to depend on the Spirit that is living within me as parents and just followers of Christ in general. We need to be constantly running back to the reality of Christ's Spirit dwelling within us. That who we are is completely based on the finished work of the cross. That our hope and our security and our future is actually based on the reality that Jesus is on the throne right now. And that our hope to grow in patience and love is actually because Jesus Christ dwells within us and he's making us more like himself. I need to be reminded that Christ is still with me. Christ is still working in me. And that's a reminder I needed this past weekend, even as I was prepping for this message, a humility that is brought out by the Spirit of God frees us to intentionally pursue the formation of our children. But the issue is that when you step into parenting, you have no idea how to do that, right? I saw this quote that really resonated with me. It says that the nature of impending fatherhood or parenthood is that you are doing something that you are unqualified to do, and then you become qualified while doing it. And I've felt that, and for some of you who are entering into that, you feel that unqualification. And what I've learned is that it's not just this being unqualified to enter into it, but it's feeling unqualified with every new step along the way. Like, okay, we were able to keep this baby alive, but now she's rebelling. Like, what's that about? Like, okay, now she's learned how to eat some food, but now she's like walking up to other kids, hitting them in the face. Like, we should probably do something about that, right? And I've heard it maybe gets a little more complex uh, from that point. But here's what I've been feeling from this text, because by no means do I know how to do this to the full. I mean, that's obvious, right? But the significant weight that I felt for myself as I was sitting with this text is the responsibility for me and Paige as parents to raise Zeta up to know and to cherish the Lord. That this isn't just something that happens by accident, but actually takes intentionality to take our eyes off of ourselves and to see the responsibility and the beauty of raising a child that God has called us as parents to an incredible calling of discipleship and raising up these little image bearers of Jesus, that stay-at-home moms, that you are bringing a faithful presence and fostering and discipling these little ones to know and love Jesus, even when it doesn't feel that significant on the day-to-day. It feels a little bit more like survival. And as I sat with this text, and I've already begun to see how Zeta is just this sponge that's soaking up everything that she sees, I, I, it's just hit me that, man, children are being formed. And the questions that hit me is, what are they being formed into, and who is the one doing the forming? I saw this uh, statistic from a research group called Barna that said, typical young people usually contain about 3,000 hours of formative, formative content in a year. 3,000 hours that's forming and shaping them 
and only 150 of those hours are explicitly Christian. And as I heard that, I'm not trying to provide this crushing weight to myself or trying to even even out those hours, but what I'm recognizing in in that moment is that, man, Zeta is being formed by someone, and I want to play a vital role in that. So what does it look like to start taking steps towards intentionality? This is a question that Paige and I were even processing this year as we're still entering into the role of being parents. And we just want to ask, okay, what's the next step that we can take? And I would say if you're in the first six months of being a parent, you're still just transitioning, all right? You're still working through the day-to-day rhythms, figuring out what that looks like as you as a couple. But this, as we've entered into a few months beyond that, we've been asking these things of ourselves. And first is that we want to start, Paige and I want to start having conversations about it. Like, let's create space and the intentional time to actually speak to these things, to ask questions that cause us to think about these things. And so a couple questions that we've asked, and these aren't by any means questions that I'm saying you need to ask yourself. These are just examples of questions that we have processed through that have been helpful for us and you to determine what it is for you. So one of those being, what rhythms do we want to have in place as a family? What, how is technology helping or hindering our parenting or presence with our child? How can we make Scripture a key element of this home? What does discipline look like? That's a whole wild thing in and of itself. What are some values that we want to make our family all about? And so like this past week, Paige and I just processed, what are like family values that we want to raise our kids up as? And so we came up with seven family values, and one of those being thankfulness, that we would love our kids to love what they already have, that we would love that to be a reality within us as well, and we put a, a verse towards it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Jesus Christ for you. Now, how that's going to go, I have no idea, uh, but it was helpful for us to actually put time to process Okay, how can we intentionally form? How can we speak into? How can we shape what our family is going to be looking like? And then take the next feasible step to do that. So the first one, have conversations about these things. And the second one is, as you're putting time towards these conversations, you're going to come up to this point more and more like we have, where we just basically say, I have no idea. Okay, and we reach out to other people in this family to help us in this process. And so the second thing, Reach out to other people in this community to help you as you are learning what it looks like along the way. Someone who has been there before, someone who has tried a variety of things, and they can tell you, man, this thing really didn't work out. Or maybe someone who just needs to encourage you on a day where you feel like your patience is in the negative, where it takes the smallest thing to flip that switch, and you just need that encouragement to cling to Jesus, to keep going, someone to remind you to operate off the strength of the Spirit in you and not your own strength. Seek out help from this community. Don't try to do it alone. We have such an amazing opportunity to lean on one another as we seek to be intentional and to be humble and to learn along the way as we pursue parenting. And so the Spirit within us calls us towards this humble intentionality in seeking the benefit of children. So the the Spirit of God dwelling within us affects us in this way, and we're going to transition now to that role of bond servants. Okay, so I covered a lot, 
in the, pre, in the intro of the background of this, so I don't want to spend too much time playing that out again, but I want to reiterate that Paul speaking to this is not in any way him condoning slavery, but it's him seeking to be a pastor to people who are honestly asking themselves, how can I live more like Jesus tomorrow? But how would this apply to our day today? I think we look at this, this structure and it's hard to like bring that over to where we're at, but as we look at the role of a bondservant and that that role was actually what provided a lot of their living, a lot of their day-to-day life and their income and what their life would look like, the clearest connection that we can make today as we look towards the bondservants of that time is that relationship of the employee and employer. What does the relationship of an employee and a boss look like when both parties are filled with the Spirit of God and walking out in that respect? And Paul is actually going to speak to a reality that sometimes we can have this breakup of a secular and sacred path, that there are some professions that are more full of the Spirit, that are more uh, purposeful and intentional for Jesus, and then there's other ones that we just have to grind through. But what Paul is saying is that no matter what profession you're in, You are filled with the Spirit of God, and you are called to serve Christ with your life. And it has significant purpose in the kingdom of God. But how does that play out in the day today? The the first verse that we see is when it says, Obey your earthly masters out of fear and trembling with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. So right away it says, fear and trembling. There's this awe and respect for something that you are carrying with you. And so if we think about for the people in this room that have a boss that they report to, the first thing that comes to mind when you think about your boss is respecting them, one of the things at the top of that list. What are the last couple things that you have said about your boss to other people? And I know some of you might be saying, Drake, but here's the thing, you don't know my boss, right? But what I think is important for us to see from this passage is that he's not saying live this way if the other person does. He's saying live this way because the Spirit of God is in you, and that's what empowers you to live this out. A line that I've heard once before is that the easiest thing to lead is the thing that you're not leading. And so is there a respect and awe for the the position and posture that they are carrying as leading where you are at? So he continues to say, working not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ. So this is not just seeking to work really hard when the boss notices, okay? Kind of what's brought about that the boss is away, the mice will play type of language, right? Not just seeking when they have eyes on what you're doing. And I can only imagine, for those of you who are working from home right now, how much more difficult this gets when they aren't even present with you in that moment to work for the good of the company. So it's not just seeking to work hard as well for those that can benefit your growth in the company. Not only doing certain things if you'll get an an applause later, but you are genuinely working for the good of the company and for the good of those around you, no matter how often you clash with those relationships. So why does Paul say these things? Because he says that in the workplace... You are not ultimately serving your boss. You are ultimately serving Christ with your life. And you actually working for the success and for the good of that company 
is seeking to exalt Christ with your life. Seeking to run up the rewards that Christ has in store for your faithful service to him rather than the pat on the back or the promotion that you might receive from a company. And so this humility brings about uh, an, a desire to work without needing your own gain in response. And what I, I don't want you to hear me say is that, is that it's not okay to pursue after some promotion. Like, that's not what I'm saying. It's okay to do that, but as long as the outcome of that pursuit doesn't define you, as long as the outcome of that doesn't determine if you lift other people up around you with your words or tear them down. And so what could this look like practically for you in the workplace? First one, make your boss look amazing. And what I mean by that is seek to work hard to pursue the growth and the success of your company to make him or her look amazing without needing the applause yourself. That you're able to celebrate what they are doing without seeking it for yourself as well. And if you're at home, again, are you efficiently and effectively working for the good of your company? When you're not around your boss, are you speaking highly of him or her? Are you trying to change the conversation to speak towards the good that they are bringing to the company? Second thing, don't feed into the culture of gossip that is present in so many different establishments. I remember from my few years in the corporate world, there, there's obviously that pursuit up the corporate ladder. And when you're trying to go up the corporate ladder, there's also an ability to tear other people down that corporate ladder. But what you're saying is, man, I don't need a greater appreciation or value for who I am than what Christ has already given me. I don't need to tear other people down in order to feel better about myself. I don't need to enter into that. I can, I can actually steer the conversation away. I can speak life about that person. I can bring up a different conversation. Speaking in a way that you also want those same people to speak about you when you're not around. Third, be quick to forgive and quick to ask for forgiveness. Where you're owning up to the task that fell through the cracks for you, where you're owning up to the ways that you treated someone poorly, or toward the posture that you had towards someone in that moment. Four, celebrate the success of other people. Like, seek out opportunities to encourage other coworkers in your company. And if you're not in the workplace with them, shoot them an email to acknowledge what they've done, to celebrate who they are, because it actually takes you taking your eyes off of yourself and the humility that Christ empowers you in to notice what other people are doing to encourage and to lift them up and not just seek to lift your own self up. And the last thing I just want to say is constantly run back to the truth that Christ is in you. And when you fall on your face and striving to be like him, you run back and see that he is actually the one empowering to live out this type of, hum empowering you to live out this type of humility in the workplace. A very clear example of a way that we need to cling to the Spirit of Christ in us to move forward in humility like Him. Lastly, he addresses the masters. And bondservants in this moment would have been completely amazed when they were spoken to directly. They would have been absolutely floored when they heard what was said next to the masters. It says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. 
He's saying, masters, you are to no longer lead out in a threatening, power-hungry posture, but you are to do the same to them. And what he means by the same is having a similar sincere heart, seeking to do the will of God with your life, seeking to be first a servant of Christ rather than a servant of your profession. And so to those who are leading others in the workplace, are you leading with a genuine concern of the people that God has placed around you? Is there an appreciation of their time or an acknowledgement of what they are doing for you on a day-to-day basis? Again, the call in this is not for people to seek a, a status in this world where they receive more and more power and they lash out on people who don't give them that or they cheer on people that do give them that value and appreciation, but where they are also no longer tied to the service of people watching what they're doing, but they're actually humbly submitting to Christ with their life. And Paul drives this point home in saying these words to them. He says, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. What he is saying is that where there might be different positions within this world, everyone is on level ground before the cross of Christ. Everyone is ultimately turning to Christ as the one that they're serving with their life, the master that they are giving their life to. And this is what fuels this humble posture to be played out in every single facet of our life. Paul's household codes, again, is Christ rules over all, which leads towards humility. And again, Paul in this letter is not seeking to bring about political change, but he is seeking to bring about a new people by the blood of Jesus. That we as the church would actually walk in the humility of Christ But the beauty behind Paul's words in this letter is that he knows that when the Spirit of God is working through the people of God, that we begin walking out of this mutual submission to Christ where humility becomes showcased more and more. When that happens, the broken institutions of this world have no ability to survive. Out of a rightful appreciation of who Christ is, Christ is working within our hearts day after day an ability to operate more and more out of the kingdom of heaven and less and less out of the kingdom of this world. To seek after our heavenly rewards rather than earthly, to seek after Christ being exalted with our lives and rather than our own name, to seek that others would be seen as more significant than ourselves, to seek to view one another as a brother or sister in Christ rather than an obstacle or a stepping stone. And just as we saw at the beginning of John's gospel that, that Jesus stepped in, he brought light into the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. Jesus is also inviting us to be a similar force within this world. That Christ is in us, is bringing about the kingdom of heaven one small glimpse at a time. That day after day, he is bringing about that reality more and more in our lives, ushering in the beautiful humanity that we were all designed to live in and will one day experience to the full. The Spirit of God is empowering you in Christ to live out that type of humility, to bring about the values of the eternal kingdom and live them more in your day-to-day life this week. As you move forward in the day-to-day life, Cling to the Spirit of Christ that is in you to empower you to live that out. 
And some of you, that's just a reminder that you need this morning. That it's not about what you do, but it's all about what Christ has done for you. And he's welcoming you back into his presence. That he is in you, working within you to make you more like him. That tomorrow, in the day-to-day life, we need to sing those words, yet not I, but Christ in me. It's not just in the grand moments in life, but the faithful, everyday moments that we need to cling to him. And we can have confidence that he is empowering us to live more like him wherever we're at. Let's pray. Jesus, I feel the need to just come humbly before you again and to cling to you and to trust you this morning. Even as I proclaim these words and even in prepping this message, seeing my own child as an obstacle towards what I wanted to do, that I I needed my own free time. And there's so many times I seek my own benefit. I seek my own gain in the day-to-day life rather than a concern for other people. I seek my own applause rather than your own. And thank you, Jesus, that you saw me in that state. You saw all of us in that state, and that's when you chose to come and die for us. That you lived out this example of humility to the full, and that led you to going to the cross on our behalf, dying in our place, paying the penalty that we deserved. And I get to come back to that truth this morning, that I come back to you in full confidence because of what you have done on my behalf. So Jesus, help me to not run from you now. Help me not to seek your forgiveness and try to do it on my own, but help me to go into this week seeking to depend on your spirit within me, seeking to live out the eternal kingdom in my Monday morning. Jesus, would you help all of us, would you strengthen all of us to do that for your glory and our joy? Amen.